Please take God's word and turn to Mark chapter number 10 this morning. Mark chapter number 10. And we'll finally finish this chapter up this morning. Mark chapter number 10 and our reading will be from verses 46 through 52 this morning. And if you're willing and able, I'd encourage you to stand for the reading of God's word out of reverence for you. And this is the infallible and errant word of God. Mark chapter 10 and verse number 46, you read these words. Now they came to Jericho. As he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great multitude, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And then many warned him to be quiet. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. And then they called the blind man, saying to him, Be of good cheer, rise, he is calling you. And throwing aside his garment, he rose and came to Jesus. So Jesus answered and said to him, What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Rabboni, that I may receive my sight. Then Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you whole. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. Let's pray. Father, it's um, such a blessing and a privilege to read your word. Father, it's um, such a blessing and a privilege that we often discount and do not take advantage of. Father, would you help us this morning be able to say with Job that we desire your word more than our necessary food. Father, can we say with the psalmist that um, it's sweeter than honey that comes out of the honeycomb. Father, your, your word is such a blessing, Father. It's, um, in some sense, a life to us. Um, it is that energy. It, it, it is that energy. It gives us that energy, Father, um, to take up our cross and follow you. Father, it's in some sense the embodiment. Christ is the Logos. He is the Word, Father. He is the embodiment of, of the very character and the nature of God. And um, He's left beside, behind for us, Father, not only a, um, a comforter to live inside us, but a Word that will be a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. So, Father, would you light our path this morning? Would you go before us as Christ does? Father, would the Spirit just enable us to understand? Father, would you give us eyes to see? Would you give us ears to hear, Father? Um, would you give us a heart that's tender into the very Word of God? Father, may we reverence it this morning, but may we also rejoice um, in the fact that, that in your Word, Father, we can know you and to know you as life. And to know you, his life is eternal life. So, Father, would you help us now as we sit under your word, Father, under its reading, under its teaching, Father, under its declaration. God, and may it go to places that only you can in the hearts of men. Father, would you do eternal things with it? Because we know that outside of the Spirit of God, out of, outside of abiding in Christ this morning and his word, we can do nothing. So, Lord, be with us now in such a way that we can say afterwards, 
we truly met with Christ this morning. Father, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. We return back to Mark chapter number 10, and we're just taking it, revisiting with us. We uh, praise God for you being here. And just to bring you up to speed, we're just walking verse by verse through the book of Mark. And um, we finished the account in 35 through 45 last week, and we pick up here in verse number 46. And one of the difficulties of preaching through a book like this um, is that some days it can seem monotonous, some weeks, but can also seem somewhat familiar. You know, one of the one of the difficulties for the preacher, that is, anyway, um, is coming to a passage like this. When just a few months ago, if it has been even that long, we have a very, it sounds very familiar because in Mark chapter number 8 and verse number 22, you read these words, then he came to Bethsaida and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of town and he spit on his eyes and put his hands on him and he asked him if he saw anything. And you could go on and finish the passage there. But the point is, is that um, the difficulty sometimes with the preacher and maybe with the hearer um, is to, to, to come to a passage of Scripture like this and want to take it and do something different with it than what's there. Why? Because it can seem somewhat monotonous to preach almost the same passage with the same points and the same application. Um, and there was a, tempt, a temptation to do that this week. Um, but at the same time, when you do that and try to dress it up in some different way, you really remove the true beauty of what Christ is accomplishing here. So I'm going to leave it as it is and preach to you this morning, um, blind Bartimaeus, with probably a lot of the same application. But at the same time, um, I'm intrigued by our Lord about all the things that he often repeats for us. Um, it must mean that we need them over and over and over again. It must mean that we need to hear the gospel time and time and time again. It must mean that there is something necessary within these portions of Scripture that Mark and Peter and uh, James and John and all these uh, apostles and prophets of God just continue to repeat and drive home to us as, as, as natural men. So we come to uh, verse number 46. And this is really a pivotal portion of Scripture um, you know, if you could divide the, the book of Mark almost down the middle, I think I've told you that before in chapter number 8 and 9, there's that divide and it goes through 9 to 16. And you see this somewhat of directional change in the ministry of our Lord going from public to mostly private. He turns from um, exemplifying his deity and displaying it to a lost and a dying world in a public sense. Um, to really the last eight, nine chapters, there's almost a directional change to where he pivots more so to his disciples. But if you wanted to even divide up the last um, eight chapters of the book, um, you would divide it up after this portion of Scripture. Um, as I wasn't here a few weeks ago, but I'm sure that Nathan preached at a verse of, uh, 32 through 34 um, that our Lord has now set his face towards Jerusalem. Um, in such a way that it's set towards it as the Old Testament writers would say like a flint. Um, he's determined that this is where he's to go. Naturally, it seems a commonplace. No one probably would have even picked it up um, because this would be a natural time in the disciples' lives and all of the Jewish lives and the nation of Israel to turn their faces to Jerusalem because it was time for Passover. 
Um, so you would find during this portion of Scripture and in, in the New Testament days, um, a large portion of the Israelites leaving their homes and making a trek towards Jerusalem. So Jesus would have just fit in. Um, the disciples as well as um, the, the, the rest of the nation of Israel, the Pharisees and the scribes, would have saw nothing out of the ordinary for our Lord. While well, he's got his eyes set to die and to suffer for his name's sake and to go before um, those disciples and those who would follow after him, um, while well, he's got his eyes set on it for that purpose, the rest of the nation of Israel has it set on for a, a another purpose, which in some sense is the same, right? The Passover is that unique time of the year where they would gather together and celebrate and commemorate um, the, the, the nation of Israel being brought out of bondage of the nation of Egypt, uh, freed from slavery, but we'd also find in the, in the book of Deuteronomy and many other places that this one of Moses, there would one come after him that would be a greater prophet. Um, this prophet would be Jesus Christ himself, and he would be the sacrificial lamb. He would be um, the Passover. So Christ has got his eyes set on Jerusalem for that particular purpose um, where he would become the Passover lamb. But he fits right in with the crowds. We find here in verse 46 that now they came to Jericho, probably around 10 to 15 miles outside of Jerusalem, and they're trekking their way. We'll get to next week, um, chapter number 11, and it'll be that great portion of Scripture that we often preach before Easter, that week before of Palm Sunday, um, where he'll finally have that great triumphal entry on the donkey, and they will praise him, and within a week they will crucify him. But the text says now they come to Jericho. Jericho may be very familiar to you out of the Old Testament. You remember the walls fell. Um, not only that, but there's another portion of uh, Jerusalem or, or Israel that's also referred to as Jericho. There's a place that's closer. It was a newer Jericho. So you have these two sites um, referred to. It's hard to say exactly which one they're referring to, but probably 10 to 15 miles outside um, as they trek their way. And Jesus has his face set like a flint towards um, Jerusalem. And the text goes on to say that as he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great multitude, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging. We find a man here, um, which the, the entirety of the story really centers around Christ and this blind man named Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus literally means, the, 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 the translation is there for us. Son of Timaeus, we don't know his legitimate name. We don't know what others would have called him. You may remember that Simon Peter is often referred to as Simon Bar-Jonas. Bar meaning the son of Jonas. So what we see here is a man that is identified not as his literal um, Israelite name, Jewish name, um, but as a title given to him to be the son of a man by the name of Timaeus. There's a lot of speculation as to who this man is. Um, and we don't know. And it's interesting that this portion of Scripture, and um, there's a parallel account in Matthew as well as in Luke, only Mark here gives us his name. Um, many people believe that the reason that his name is given is because they would have recognized him as the letter was circulated. Um, Many of the commentators, Christians throughout history have believed that Bartimaeus at some point became very influential within the church, um, such that whenever these letters were circulated among all the churches, one of the reasons that his name is, is included um, is because the church would have recognized him. Um, again, that's somewhat speculation, um, but good speculation. It very well could have been um, the reason for that. Um, 
So we know who he is, and all that we know is that he's a son of a man by the name of Timaeus. Other than that, we know that he's blind. Uh, there's a portion later in the, the text that says that he wants to see again um, in some uh, manuscripts and translations and interpretations. Um, so, so there's some speculation as to whether he was born blind, or it may, that, that very phrase may indicate um, that he will receive his sight again, that he lost it at some point. Um, and blindness in the time of the New Testament is not uncommon. Um, one commentator writes this. He says that diseases of the eye were very common in the East. Thompson says of Ramla, and he's quoting another historian, says that the ash heaps are extremely mischievous. On the occurrence of the slightest wind of the air filled with fine pungent dust, which is injurious to the eyes. He says, I once walked through the streets counting all that, all that, there, that were blind, either blind or had defective eyes, and it mounted to about one half of the male population. The women I could not count, for they were rigidly veiled, he says. Um, Paul Gray says that ophthalma is fearfully prevalent, especially among children. It would be no exaggeration to say, he says, that one adult out of every five has his eyes more or less damaged by the consequence of this disease. Um, that blindness in the New Testament times, even in the Middle East today, was extremely um, prevalent. And the great tragedy in New Testament times and probably in much of the Middle East today is that when a man went blind, he lost it all. Um, he was often seen, as you may remember that account, um, of, of, a, of a, a man that was born blind and Jesus engages with the Pharisees, the scribes, and his disciples, and they ask him, who sinned, his mother or his father, you know, that he would be born blind? that um, Israelites and that Middle East, it was not uncommon to believe, but particularly among the Jews, that, that blindness was a judgment from God. That uh, much of the maladies and the disease that we have in this world, uh, many people um, uh, concluded that if someone was born with such a malady, that it must be because their mother or their father um, had sinned. So they were the proverbial outcast of the day. Um, they were given no, they, they, just because of their physical inability, but because of their, their spiritual um, branded, because they were spiritually branded as outcasts and under the judgment of God. Um, when a man was born blind or entered into blindness in his life, um, he was subject to being um, the, the, the outcast of society. Um, he wouldn't work and he wouldn't labor. And um, nine times out of ten, if not often ten times out of ten, um, he would be what else? We, what we also know of this man, he would become a beggar. Um, that's what he was subject to. Um, he was subject to the, to the, in, the inability um, of working. He couldn't get a job. He couldn't hold down a week's worth of work, and he couldn't hold it consistent for, for a long amount of time. Uh, first of all, his physical inability, but at the same time, because he's a spiritual outcast, no one would give the guy a job. Um, so he's subject to find, nestle, uh, find him places to nestle into society um, to simply earn a works or a, a, enough throughout the week to survive with food um, and water. Man, and what a time to do it. You know, like this is the perfect time. It may be like um, uh, this past weekend um, with the 4th of July, and um, so most people are celebrating Independence Day, so crowds are full, um, crowds are everywhere. This would be a perfect time for a beggar to find a place nestled in to a place where he knows that a crowd is going to be. I mean, that's exactly what you find here. Remember, um, as we mentioned earlier, that this is going to be a time when, when the nation of Israel is coming home, in a sense. Um, so this is going to be a time of the year where this man knows that he's probably going to be fed. 
Um, so whether it's crawling to the crowds and the noise himself or someone brought him there, they settled him down and nestled him into the crowds um, as the Israelites would pass by and travel through Jerusalem. So this man positions himself on the street to make the most of Passover week and probably receive the best uh, food or the most food that he'll receive um, throughout the entirety of the year. Verse number uh, 47, we read, And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, um, have mercy on me. If you were to read Luke's account and Matthew's account, you'd actually find out um, that he heard a hustle and bustle. Um, he heard the crowds were raging, and he actually asked somebody, why are the crowds like they are? Um, and I'm paraphrasing Luke here. Um, and then someone tells him that Jesus of Nazareth has come. And there's no doubt in my mind that this man knows who Jesus of Nazareth is. Um, up until this point, three years, um, there's no doubt in my mind that um, his, the, his fame has, has went broad all throughout the nation of Israel, all among the Jews, the Pharisees and the scribes, and love him or hate him, you knew about him. You know, and there was no way to hide um, the 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 fame of this man. Whether you determine him to be a prophet or a false prophet or a rabbi or the very son of God, um, there's no doubt in my mind that this man knew who he was. There's no doubt that he had heard that just previously to this, if you study the other gospels, it seems that this also comes on the heels on the on the the heels of the late, the raising of Lazarus. Not only that, but he's probably heard about the blind men that have been healed, the people that have been fed, and uh, hundreds if not thousands of other uh, miracles that he did all throughout his ministry um, that would just um, elate this man if he could only get uh, the proverbial glimpse of this man named Christ. He's coming through his town. Who knows if he'll ever make it through again? And what does it provoke in this man? It provokes a desperation and a cry. And that's exactly what you see. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. When he hears of Christ coming, he makes the most of the opportunity. He can't find him. He can't see him. He can't run to him. He doesn't know where he's at. All that he does is hear. So he does the only thing that he knows how to do, and that's cry. The very tense of the word here in its original um, just brings such a vividness to the idea of what he's doing here. You know, it was, it was a, a continual sense of shouting and crying. This very word would be used of the demons um, that, would, that, would, um, that, would, uh, that would be present within a man and they would cry out um, as Jesus came and there would just be this shrieking type of noise. And um, that's exactly what happens here. Um, the man knows how fast the crowds move. The man knows that the crowds are only, uh, that, that they're only there for a short period of time. Um, and he is going to find Christ. So you see this um, perseverance in communion, this, or, or communication, this perseverance in prayer in some sense. This desire to commune and to communicate with our Lord. Um, thus he cries out, in continual raised voice, in a manner of crying out over and over and over and over again. Um, and it's very interesting to think about the time in which it's happening, you know. The time in which it is happening is whenever the, the nation of Israel again is traveling back to Jerusalem. Um, you may know that in the Psalms, the Jewish hymn book, you have a collection of psalms from Psalm 120 to 134 that are called the Song of Ascents, 
What would happen is, is that when the nation of Israel would come home, they would take this collection of songs and as they would ascend to the hill, as they would ascend to, to Zion, as they would, as they would ascend to the nation of Israel and to, to Jerusalem particularly, um, they would sing these psalms, Psalm 120 through Psalm 134. When the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which would have been the Bible of many of the Jews of that day and um, that they would have read and that Jesus often quotes from, um, Psalm 120 starts like this. Um, In my distress, I cried to the Lord, and He heard me. Deliver my soul, O Lord. Deliver my soul. In the, in, the, in the Greek translation, it's the exact same word that you find here in Mark chapter number 10, this word cry. Psalm chapter 130, you also read these words, which is the psalm that we read at the commencement of the service this morning. Um, Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, how, who could stand? You know? And it may very well be, and this is just speculation, but some food for thought. It very well could have been as the crowds are going through that often they would sing the Psalms and the Psalms are being sung and maybe they sang Psalm 130. Maybe they sang Psalm 120 and the, the words just ver- reverberate in his ears and he hears the cries of the psalmist and, 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 and possibly even cries out to God with the same type of em- emphasis, the same type, even using, utilizing the same words. Again, that's not... Um, black and white scriptural, but just some, some, food for, some food for thought. And he cries out, and he cries out as the psalmist did, some, with this, this, this humility and this humbleness, as he cries out, Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me. Verse number 48 says, Then many warned him to be quiet, but then he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. At this point... Um, his prayer is not somewhat particular, you know. He doesn't cry out like many of the, the beggars of the day. He doesn't cry out many times like we do. He doesn't have a shopping list. It's very general. It's very basic. It's, and in some sense, you could almost argue that that's um, too general or too basic. But at the same time, you could argue that it's possibly the most humble prayer at all if it's from the heart. Um, that, that, that he begs for whatever mercy the Lord determines to lay upon this poor blind beggar. And he was fine with that. Maybe he was fine with whatever the son of David would bring him. Um, he doesn't cry out for a meal. He doesn't ask for $20. He doesn't beg for a night at the hotel. He simply cries out for, for mercy. Not only that, he cries out in faith. He cries out, son of David. You know? Nobody knows how this man knew that this Christ, this Jesus, was the son of David, but he did. He did. He knew that he would be the branch of Jesse. He knew that, that he would be the righteous branch out of David's line. Now, hearing Jesus, Bartimaeus cries out, uh, Son of David. Um, this would have been u- unique. This would have been significant for that time. This would have been a direct, um, I'm convinced, a direct um, uh, title and, and recognition of the deity of Christ, the one who would come out of um, 2 Samuel 7, verse 11 through 14, and that great Davidic covenant, that covenant that was made with David, um, the one who would come and be a greater than David, who would establish a kingdom of which there would be no end. 
And thus he cries out uniquely. You don't find that coming from an outsider um, within the, the, the entirety of the book of Mark. You see some allusion to it in the very beginning in the genealogy and other places. Um, but Bartimaeus uses and utilizes this in, in a unique way throughout in the book of Mark and it carries, I'm convinced, explicit overtones of the Messiah. And this is important. This is extremely important that he recognizes that. Um, because mercy is relative to the person that's administering it, right? Like it's one thing to ask a stranger have mercy on you. It's another thing to ask. It's another thing to ask your father or your mother. It's one thing to ask your enemy to have mercy on you. It's another thing to ask a friend. This man, by the nature of the titles that he references our Lord with, not only here but later on, he's going to refer to him as Rabbi, not just Rabbi, but Rabbi. You know, most uh, Christians throughout the ages and Jewish uh, people even today um, recognize that the term Rabboni, um, it speaks of master. It's, 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 not, it's very rarely used to speak of mankind at all or humanity or anything less than, than God Himself. It's, it speaks of one that, that is even greater than the term that we use, Lord. Um, it's unique that, that the titles that He gives um, convinces, should, should convince us that, that, that He's not crying out for general mercy. He's not asking for food. He, is, he, he recognizes that the King of kings and the Lord of lords, um, the, the one who would come out of the line of David, who would establish a kingdom of which there would be no end, this is the one in whom he asked mercy. So it's more than just you know, asking for a food city gift card or a good meal or a night at the end. The possibility is endless. Thus he prays a prayer of faith, believing that he is standing before, the, before God himself. Maybe he remembered Isaiah 35.5 that says whenever the Messiah would come that he would open the eyes of the blind. But, but, but he's so humble here that he doesn't even ask for that. He simply begs God who knows his inner beings in the very heart and his mind um, to extend to him mercy that he sees fit. Verse number 48, And many warn him not to do it. You know, that word warned, you may have a translation. It could be, it could be literally translated rebuked, and maybe it is in your translation. I'm sternly commanded I'm to reprimand with firmness. This man is crying out, son of David, have mercy on me. And the crowd comes and they, they rebuke him. And they tell him to shut up, to be quiet, to stay his voice. Who knows, maybe Christ can't be bothered by this, you know. He's on a mission. He's got other things to do. You know, and that shouldn't really surprise us. We don't know exactly who did it, but if it was the disciples, like this is their MO. <laughs> you know? Like they tried to send away the 5,000. They tried to guard Christ against the children. They tried to send away and, and, and stay the demon-possessed men. Um, they, they, were, they, they, they were not people um, in, in the disciples' minds to get in the way of ministry. Or maybe it wasn't the disciples at all. Maybe it was the crowd. Maybe it was the outsiders. Maybe it was those who were just following. Maybe it was those who just jumped in, you know. Maybe it was just the local crowd who knew the blind beggar and they knew his antics and they, they were tired of him and he's that guy, you know. You, you probably know him, you know. You went by. You probably walked downtown. You probably have your places that you've went or gone. Or you remember somebody like that. Um, you've pulled up the lights and beggars have been there, you know. And you've probably been like me on many days in my natural state. And if you're not, then praise God that, you know, um, you're more of a servant than most of us on most days. But, but there's a certain kind of um, 
There's a certain kind of stereotype that comes with those type of people. And oftentimes you try to do your best to avoid them. Sometimes you try not to make eye contact. Maybe they won't see and know that you know that they're there, you know. And that, that's often a natural reaction of us. They don't make it why? because we know them, right? It very could well be that the local crowd knew this man, that, that he was a man that was a regular um, downtown. He was always in the crowd and they had fed or did something for old blind Bartimaeus probably a hundred times and here he comes again. You know, this man cannot be bothered by you. You need to turn away. Such to the point that they felt so comfortable that they could sternly rebuke him and reprimand him as a child. You know? They felt so, so. So there's probably some indication here that, that they were very familiar with this man, blind Barda Emmaus, and and as he comes and he hears, there he is again. You know, old blind Bartimaeus, don't listen to him. Um, he's crazy, and he's just here for food. Um, yet it does not deter blind Bartimaeus, not a bit. It actually fuels the fire and the flame as the crowd begins to reprimand him and their voice begins to overtake his voice. What does he do? Um, he gets louder and he cries more intensely. He recognizes possibly that this is the Son of God and the implications of that, that if I miss him, he may not be back again. Thus, I'm going to cry out louder. You cannot contain me. Um, you cannot contain me. I will find him. I must get to Jesus. I I don't care what you think. I don't care um, who you are. I, I appreciate you feeding me all the days of my life. I, I appreciate all the help that you've given me. Um, but this is this is my time. This is my Lord. This is the King of Kings, and and nothing will deter him. You know, and that's one of the most glorious virtues of a beggar, if you could actually um, say there's any virtues at all, right? A lack of pride. Um, the prideful don't beg. You know. Beggars have a lot of other vices. Uh, but one virtue that they have going for them is that they don't beg. You know, Luke 16 speaks of an unjust steward, and at the end of the day, he loses his job, and uh, he essentially says, my hands are too soft to dig, and I'm too proud to beg. Um, and at the end of the day, if that's the case, you'll starve and die. At some point, you, you know, uh, uh, poverty humbles you. Necessity humbles you to do things that you would never do. Comfort and ease are often our greatest enemies. Um, as it prevents us from bending our knee and lending out our hands to others and getting our hands dirty and doing the work of a servant. But poverty um, will rise up over you on most days. And when the hunger hits the bottom of the stomach and reality sets in that we are frail and finite and fragile beings, um, and continue on in that state, it will provoke us um, to cast aside all pride and do things that we will never do. We would have never done unless necessity had been laid upon us. This man is a man who understood necessity. Um, thus he cries out in such a way that he will not be um, deterred. Verse number 45, you see Jesus' response. So Jesus stood still and commanded him, to be called. Um, that's a very emphatic phrase there. Jesus stood still. Literally, he stopped. He's walking through the crowds. Who knows what he's doing? Maybe he's teaching. Maybe they're singing a psalm. Uh, maybe they're doing various other things, engaging with the conversation of the people that are all around him um, as he walks throughout Jericho. Um, and, and he hears. He hears the cries of this man. 
He hears the, the importunate prayer. He hears the, verse, the, the perseverance. He hears not only the first cry, but the second. Uh, maybe he hears the volume increase such that he stops. And no doubt the crowd stops with him. I mean, he asked those that are around him, possibly his disciples and possibly the local crowd, who's that man? Who's that man? And again, remember that this is Christ who in verses 32 through 34 have, and now has a resolute determination to go to Jerusalem. He set his face. Nothing will deter him. You know, uh, Nothing is going to set aside the work that he has to do. And you can imagine, or I can imagine, I can't imagine. You know, I mean... I, I know what it's like to have a funeral before me tomorrow. Like there's nothing else I can think about. Like it's hard to, to preach a sermon, to get up and to, I need to study for that. I need to study for this. I'm a one track mind. There's something before me that's important and, 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 and time is a factor. I need to study. I need to pray. It's hard to think about much else. It's hard to engage in conversations. It's hard to see other needs. The anxiety is great and, and, and pray that the Lord would take it away. Now, there's deadlines, there's expectations, there's lost people, there's God watching and He's listening. And, and you can imagine what's going on with our, our Lord's mind, with the burden that He's about to bear, with the tears that He's going to cry, with the, the, sweats that he, or the, the, the drops that He's going to sweat of, 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 of blood, with the, the prayers that He's going to, to wrestle with with the Lord. And he, um, he just finished teaching His disciples about that. And it even says in verse 32 that the disciples are afraid. Fear rests upon them. And yet He stops. He stops. He's deterred for just a moment. You can imagine all the people that he turned down, that he doesn't stop for with all the prestige and all the position. Um, he doesn't stop for the high and lofty. He doesn't engage with the local philosophers or theologians. He's got his, he's got his, he's got his eyes before him set like to, to Jerusalem like a flint. He's, he doesn't stop for the wise or the noble, the religious or the political elite. Um, and it isn't it amazing with all the encounters that we've engaged in in the Gospels, like Jesus is always stopping for people, but it's never for those. You know, he always gives his attention to men and women like this. Beggars. Why? Because Last week we learned that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. He came not to heap up accolades for Himself in this life, but heap up reward in His death. And this day His reward stands right before Him. It cries out to Him. What was it? It was a beggar named Blind Bartimaeus who had a real need. And this beggar understood his need. And it made Jesus stand still, stop dead in His tracks, why? Matthew tells us in his parallel account that it's because when Jesus heard Bartimaeus, he was moved with compassion. He was moved with compassion. Thus, he issues a command. And the command is for him to be called. Call who? Call Bartimaeus. Call him where? Call him to me. The crowd immediately changes the tune and, and they come to him. They go to blind Bartimaeus and the text records for us um, again that, that, that literally it says that he rises up. Now, these people come now. Um, Jesus says, bring him to me. These people come and they, they, they say, Jesus wants you. He, he's calling you. Um, blind Bartimaeus doesn't, he doesn't hesitate. The, the text says in, in the New King James, rise up. But it can literally uh, be translated, he sprung up or he, he springed up, however the appropriate English language translation of that is. Um, that, that he jumped up out of his seat and he came to Jesus. He throws off his garment. He lays aside um, all that he has in that moment. 
and he goes to Christ. Maybe he ran, maybe he walked, uh, probably stumbled as a blind man. Maybe someone led him. We don't know, um, but we know that he, he found him. It's important to note that, that um, his outer garment um, um, would have been that, that, that thing that likely, it's, it's like a, a person who sits out today and they lay a hat out um, before them. Um, that's what the money goes in. That's where the alms go. That's where he receives um, his aid and his help. Uh, the, 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 the garment probably was that. Um, it was that place that he had cast over his lap and people would come and they would put the alms or the gifts um, that they had in his lap. Um, and you find in this moment that as Jesus comes and just with the earnestness of desire, the cries out, Jesus says, come, and he casts all that aside. He casts the alms down. He, he pushes them to the side. He throws them away. Like he doesn't come to Jesus with his cloak ready to be filled or his garment ready to receive um, the food or this or that. He comes in some sense um, without any of that. He casts it all off. And then Jesus says these words, which if you were with us last week, you may um, remember. He asks him, um, what do you want me to do for you? So Jesus stood still and commanded him to call. And then they called the blind man and said to him, be of good cheer, rise. He is calling you. And throwing aside his garment, he rose and came to Jesus. So verse 51, so Jesus answered and said to him, what do you want me to do for you? You remember that in verse 36? He said to him, what do you want me to do for you? To James and John. I'm convinced that this text is arranged exactly the way that it is, not simply as just some, um, some, some needless repetition of a blind man. We needed to know that another blind man could be healed. I'm convinced that it is nestled in this portion of Scripture um, to teach us um, a contrast between what happened last week and what happened this week. The two men come with arrogance and that are even his disciples and in some sense, charge Jesus to give them what they don't deserve. And Jesus teaches them what a true servant is. Um, and that a true servant has, is one who meets the needs of others. And in this passage, this portion of Scripture, that's exactly what you see. You see Jesus uh, fulfilling that, 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 that um, prophecy, of, it's his self-prophecy of a son of man did not come to, serve, but, or to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And he took upon himself the form of a servant in this very passage. And he bows the knee in some sense to wash this blind man's feet who really, truly understands that he has a need. You know, it's not just a want, it's not just a desire, it's not just some um, superficial arrogance that is upon him that comes to Jesus and says, man, I'd really like to have um, this thing because it would just, you know, do whatever it is that it would do for me. You know, you see a direct contrast of those that come to Christ with a need and utter desperation, um, casting aside whatever it is that, 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 that defines them and identifies them and even sustains them in the garments that they have. They cast off their own righteousness and they simply they run to Christ. They will not be deterred. And when people mock and people complain and people chide and people reprimand um, uh, th this man for serving Jesus and desiring um, to be a child of God and to follow after Him and to seek um, what, what it, whatever mercies may be found in this son of David, this, 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 this man who will be the fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecies, it isn't, it, they, they, they cannot be deterred. Why? Because they need Christ. They need it. They need everything that's contained within Him. They need essentially Him. Thus Jesus attends to the ears and attends to the requests 
and attends to the, the needs of people like that. That's the story, right? The blind man says to him, you know, Rabboni, Master, that I may receive my sight. You know? Um, and his eyes were opened. And it's an interesting thing, you know, that Jesus would even ask him such a question. And, and that, that often probably is a quarrel in our own mind, I know. As I said last week, prayer boggles my mind. Why I should ask, the, why I have to ask the Lord for anything if He knows all things. But at the same time, we recognize that that thing that makes a man whole is faith. Thus, faith must be elicited in a man for him to receive the blessings of Christ. Thus, it is a gift to us. It was a gift to this man that Jesus would ask such a question to elicit such faith in this man that he would run, he would not only continue to run to him, but put his faith and trust in him that he would receive the reward of Christ's suffering as he received Christ himself. And that's exactly what you see there in verse 52. Then Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. Or you may have a translation that says, has made you whole. And the term there is the exact same term that is used for salvation. Um, it's so-so. It means to be saved. You could translate that, um, your faith has saved you. It has made you whole. It has made you complete. And immediately it says that he received his sight. He followed Jesus on the road. Luke chapter number 18 um, is the um, parallel account of this portion. And Luke ends it just a little different way. He says these words, And immediately he received his sight and followed him glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. That what you find is you find that, that Christ interacts with this man in such a way to meet his need and to elicit faith that would be the means by which he would not only be healed physically, but also healed spiritually. That I believe there's a dual component to, to this. And I think that you see it in, the, in, the, in the, the testimony of the faith that this man has and that what Jesus Christ grants, but also immediately following, he glorifies God. It culminates in worship and in gratitude in such a way um, that, that it also um, demands Within, out of the gratitude, loyalty, such that this man would follow Jesus. That one uh, Matthew Henry writes that when he received his sight, he followed Jesus, by the way. By this he made it appear uh, that he was thoroughly cured, that, he needed, that no more needed one to lead him, but he could go himself. And by this he evidenced the grateful sense he had of Christ's kindness to him, that when he had had his sight, he made this use of it. It is not enough to come to Christ for spiritual healing, but when you are healed, he says, we must continue to follow him, that we may do honor to him and receive instruction from him, that those that have spiritual eyesight, he says, see the beauty of Christ that will effectually draw them to run after him. End quote. Having received his sight, he followed Jesus. He didn't selfishly go his way. You can imagine people today as they work on hearing and they work on eyesight and they work on various other diseases with technology and medicine. I mean, it's just extremely advanced. And that question would probably come up in every single episode. If you could regain your sight, what would you do with it? What's the first thing you'd look at? Where would you go? Especially if you remembered some things, you know? Um, I would, I would want to see the mountains, man. Take me to the oceans. The first time that I ever want to see anything, open it up before my wife 
so that I can see her like I saw her that day on, on our wedding day. You know? But not this man. He doesn't say, I need to go see this, or he doesn't say that I need to go say that, or I need to go see that. You know, man, it would be great to see uh, the temple again. It would be great to, 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 to bring and see the blood, um, to be the, see the blood um, pour out again, that great sacrifice on my behalf. It would be great um, to see family. It would be great to do this, man. Um, no, no, no. The, the, the text is very clear that with his sights, he immediately, the text says, followed Jesus on the road. I'm convinced that he followed him all the way. He may have defected towards the end, but again, I'm convinced um, that, 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 that it's possible that as a result of him being named here, that he was a very prominent place in the church and that he followed Jesus for the rest of his life. That having received his sight, he follows Jesus. He doesn't selfishly go on his way when his need is met. He begins with need, moves on to gratitude, and finishes with loyalty which is a perfect illustration and summary of everything that God demands of us as disciples for Him. And that's the text. You know, that's it. So what's the application? We've talked about some of it. Well, the first application is the application that I've tried to bring you with every single miracle. The Gospels tell us that one of the great reasons that the things were recorded here in this portion of Scripture and that the miracles are recorded in such a way that they are um, is to provide with you um, the means by which you would come to faith in Christ. That it should convince you that if Jesus is able today to heal the blind man, that He is able to heal um, the spiritually blind. That what we have contained within these Scriptures and these miracles, um, it testifies to the very, not only the humanity, but the deity of Christ in such a way that we should walk away and say, this man is God. Like this man is not only man, but he's truly man and truly God. That he, has the, that he is the fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecy, that what Isaiah prophesied of um, in Isaiah 35 and in Isaiah 60 and 61 and many other places, this is the man. This is the fulfillment of the prophecy of the one who would come out of the lineage of David. This is the lion out of the tribe of Judah. This is the one who would, um, who would bruise the, the, the whom, whom the serpent would bruise his head and that he would crush the head of the serpent and that the, the serpent would bruise his heel. That this is the one. That is what this text should do in your heart this morning as you submit yourself to him. That it should work a work in your heart in such a way that it would elicit faith in you. That you would cry out as a needy person as you recognize um, your insufficiency and your deficiency. Um, it should cause you to cry out. And when your family tells you that you are ignorant, that you are hillbilly, that you are backward, that this is a book of antiquity, it should cause you to cry out all the more. It should cause you to seek Him and to long after Him. It should cause you after you read the text of Scripture to come to the realization um, that you are inadequate, that you are insufficient, that you are unrighteous, that you are, 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 are less than, that you cannot um, uh, accomplish your own salvation, that you are in this sense, in, in some sense, um, the outcast in your story. That you are blind, that you are deaf, that you cannot speak, that you have no standing before God, and that you and I need to recognize that we are deficient and cry out to Jesus as our only hope, even in the midst of discouragement and reprimand. Um, that, they do, that, that there is no moral obligation to submit 
to those who restrict us from Christ. And that, he, that you should run to Him, that this is our story. Read the story, right? We find an outcast. The outcast is deficient. He recognizes that he's deficient and he cries out to Jesus as his only hope. And that there are people around him discouraging him. He doesn't listen, but in faith, becomes all the more emphatic. Jesus responds and heals this man in faith. And the man becomes not only a private, but a public follower of Jesus Christ. That's our story. This is his story. And it shouldn't be changed. And we shouldn't make it all about us. But at the same time, like the, the, not, not only does it, does it elicit faith, not only is it given to elicit faith in us to, to, to cause us to submit to Christ in salvation, um, but these are also episodes and illustrations that teach us how to come to Christ altogether. Right? That there's many significant details here. That, the, that this blind man has so much to teach us. Right? That they refused to accept discouragement when the crowd was wanted to silence them, that they were specific about their request, that he was um, that, that he understood that this was possibly the only chance that he ever had to be healed because this was the only man, Christ Jesus, that could ever heal him. Thus he puts himself in the way. Thus he he finds Christ. Thus he pursues him. Thus he puts himself in 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 the, in, in the middle of where Christ would extend those blessings. To him, and that's us, right? Like that, when we come to Christ, we must come to Him deficient. One of the great dangers that I've I've encountered in my own life, in my own heart, and maybe you've encountered it as well, and encountered it with other people. The great danger is of self-deceit. You know, this man would have never would have never come had he not realized that he was blind. You know. That salvation is contingent upon a humble heart, and a humble heart recognizes the the state of the soul. You know, it looks into the mirror of the Word of God, and it looks into the God of very God Himself, and it and, and it confesses um, the the reality of Himself to God. Right, and that's what John teaches us. You know, that, that word confess in First John chapter one nine, and it speaks of us confessing to God. It literally means to say the same thing. To say the same thing that God knows. To say the same thing of the truth. To, to, to come to grips with, with who you are in relationship to God. You know, that, that, that there's many of us in our culture, and maybe you've been like that in former days, and maybe you're like that now. That you, you, you want to come to Jesus and you want to, to bring your best. Or maybe you want to come to Jesus, but you, can't feel, you don't feel like you can come to Jesus because you're the worst. And you think, I have nothing to bring Him. I have nothing that will honor Him. I have nothing to bring Him that, that, that will make Him love me. Blind Bartimaeus, what did you bring? I brought my blindness. That's it. I heard a story from J. Vernon McGee this week of a, you know, about the 50s or 60s, I don't know how long ago it was, but there was a church in Texas of a young, with a young man who came and said um, he wanted to be baptized. So the deacon sat down with him and they, and they, um, and they asked him the question, you know, well, t- tell me what happened um, with your salvation account. And he said, he said, well, I did my part and God did his part. And um, the man looked at him somewhat troubled and said, son, tell us a little bit more. Like, what did you do? And he said, what did God do? And he said, well, I did the sinning and God did the saving. You know, that, that whenever you come to Christ, that's all you need to bring. Whatever it is, and you need to be um, honest with yourself and you need to be honest with God. You know, that the only thing, I think one of the great theologians said, the only thing that I contributed to my salvation was my sin. And that's all you need to bring him, friends. 
That's all you need to bring them, church. That's all you need to bring them, boys and girls. That Christ doesn't, doesn't require anything of you because everything that you have to bring um, is just, is just uh, is filthy rags before a holy God. That what you need to bring is yourself. And that's where cleansing is found and that's where sin is forgiven and that's where righteousness is extended and that's where benefits are bestowed upon those who become children of God. And those that become children are those who recognize their tremendous need. And that when you come to Him and you see the beauty of Christ, that you follow Him all the days of your life, that that, grateful, that great surrender to Christ is a surrender not only for eternal life, but it's a surrender to follow Him for the rest of your life. That's what blind Bartimaeus did. He utilizes the benefits that were bestowed upon him for the kingdom's sake, and he followed Jesus. It concerns me when men say, I know Jesus and I'm a Christian. And they pray a prayer and they follow and they say, I'm, you know, I want to... Uh, I know Jesus and I believe in Him. And they utilize that eternal life that supposedly they'd been given. They use their eyesight, supposedly, to fulfill their wild oats and to live their life as they already intended it. You know? You say, yeah, I've got eyesight. If that eyesight's not following Jesus, you didn't receive eyesight. You're still as blind as the as a midnight hour. There's never been. If you've never seen the, if you if you claim to have seen the beauty of Christ in such a way um, that eternal life and the benefits of Christ and the righteousness and the forgiveness and all of these benefits and that you become a child of the Most High King and you tell me that you can lift your eyes up with that eyesight and walk your own way, I'll say that you know you have no idea what a biblical salvation you've not seen the beauty of Christ. Now that's not to say that if you're that person like me on many days, who feels like the worst follower of Jesus. That's not what I'm talking about. That's a person who's using their eyesight. That's a person that gleans into the very majesty of Christ and sees his own worthiness and his necessity of Christ. Thus, he continually comes back each and every single day. Listen, you may not follow him the best and you may not follow him the most faithfulness, but if Christ is in you, you will follow him. And you will recognize your, your, your worth and you will recognize His worth and you will spend the rest of your lives falling, but you will also spend the rest of your lives um, getting back up. And that Christ offers that same invitation to you today if you don't know Him. Matthew Henry goes on to say that the gracious invitations Christ gives us to, is to come to Him are great encouragements to our hope. That we shall speed well if we come to Him and shall have what we come for if we come to Him. So let the guilty, let the empty, let the tempted, let the hungry, let the naked, let them be of good comfort, for He calls them to be pardoned, to be supplied, to be succored, to be filled, to be clothed, to have all that, done, that He'd done for them, which their case falls for, which their case calls for. Listen, that if you today run to Christ, I will guarantee you that if you run to Him with a, with a heart of faith, trusting in Him and a heart of repentance, that you will have what you came for. And what you came for is all of Him. You will have all of Him and all of His majesty and in all of His glory. You will have Him. And there will be no other way that you can walk but to walk behind Him as you follow Him. You'll have nowhere else to go. 
the rest of the world will begin to lose its taste. And the rest of the world will, be, will begin to lose its luster. The rest of the world will pale in comparison to what you find as you open your eyes and He opens your eyes and you see Jesus and Him crucified and the majesty that rails within Him. J.C. Ryle writes these words. He says, The man who boasts of having an interest in Christ or does not follow Christ in his life is a miserable self-deceiver and is ruining his own soul. So I beg you this morning, this evening, this afternoon, to come to Christ. You say, you don't know what I've done. No, but I know what Christ has done. You say, I have nothing to bring. All He wants you to bring is yourself. And that when you bring yourself in utter desperation and need, a person that cannot be deterred, you will have what you came for. And that you will have and what you came for, because what you came for is Christ. Listen, there will only be one kind of person in heaven. And that's a beggar. And beggars alone. There'll be rich beggars and there'll be poor beggars. There'll be smart beggars. There'll be foolish beggars. But they'll all be beggars. And there will not be anyone who will not be a beggar in heaven. Because to get into the kingdom of God, you must come to the end of yourself, recognize your need of Christ, and run to Him as you are. And in that, find Him as He is and thus receive everything that He is. Open your eyes and spend the rest of your life walking after, running after Christ. And if that's you today, I beg you to look to Him and to run to Him in this moment. Let's pray. Father, we praise You and thank You for the privilege it is to call upon Your name. Father, we thank You for the glory and the majesty of Christ. Father, we thank You for the Word of God and all that's contained within. Father, we thank You for stories like this. We thank You for stories like this, Father, because it gives us hope. It gives me hope. It gives me hope that a poor, impoverished young man not only immaterial, but spiritually can find hope something greater than himself. Father, your son is beyond words. I trust that I don't even know. <laughs> Father, I, I pray that your, your spirit knows what to say. And prays for me. Tries to communicate to you what I don't know what to say. Because you've been too good to this poor sinner. And I trust that I'm in a crowd of that as well. Father, men who deserve nothing, women who deserve nothing, send her into this world, Father, with a hand bent towards pride and arrogance and rebellion. And your son comes in like a lion, <laughs> like a soldier, with a love greater, Father, than we ever deserved. And takes upon himself the form of a servant. What blessings we have the glory in. So, Father, help us the glory in those. Father, I pray that if somebody is here today that doesn't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that's never bowed the knee, 
Father, who's not a follower of Christ. I pray today, Father, that you'll take your word and just show them the beauty of Christ and their utter need of you. And may they, Father, find solace and comfort and hope in your word as they run to you. And Father, would you just overwhelm them with your love in such a way, Father, that they find security and hope in Christ this very day. Father, and if there's people here today that have that feeling and know they're lost but can't find you, Father, would you aid them to persevere? Would you encourage them, Father, to stay in the way that whenever they're reprimanded to continue to cry out and to seek your face and know that it will be found if they persevere, that you've made that promise and it'll happen. Father, would you help them to, to persevere in the word of God and in the fellowship of God's people and in prayer? Father, would you help them to find ways to put themselves under um, the presence of Christ in, within your bride, Father, and within your word? God, would you encourage them to, to, to persevere when the rest of the world's not? And maybe there's Christians here today that feel the same way. Father, that have come to you by faith in Christ but wonder some days where you're at. God, would you help them by faith to appropriate the promises of God and the perseverance to stay the course. And God, would you manifest your presence to them, Father, and wrap your loving arms around them in such a way that they know that you're there. God, in days on days when they want to abandon you, Father, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, Father, would you just overwhelm them um, with the promises of your word and the spirit of God in such a way, God, that they sustain the course. God, would you just encourage your saints this morning with the benefits and the blessings that you've bestowed upon those whom are yours. God, would you remind them of your loving kindness in Christ? Would you remind them of the spirit of God, of the depth, of the love, of the, of, of the, of the faith that we have in Christ? God, would you help them to, to, to look to you and to, to, to call to Christ and to, to persevere, Father, in, in just immeasurable ways when all the world looks at them, Father, like they're, um, like they're foolish. If that's the case, Father, then may we be fools for Christ and may we love every moment of it as we look to you and not to them, Father, for our worth and value. Father, may we be devoted followers of Christ as you've given us sight. May we follow in the footsteps of blind Bartimaeus. Father, once again, we love you and thank you, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.